Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. The Telegraph Telegraph. Podcasts I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine. The Latest. Welcome to this special episode of Ukraine The Latest, where myself and my colleagues, Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes and assistant comment editor Francis Durnley, interview a guest that for followers of Ukraine will need almost no introduction, Dr. Timothy Snyder. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Thank you all for joining us for this very special interview for The Telegraph, Ukraine the Latest. Our guest today is the Levin Professor of History and Global Affairs at Yale University, a critically acclaimed author and a renowned historian specializing in Ukraine. He is also one of our most requested guests for the podcast. So welcome, Professor Snyder. Glad to be with you. So my first thoughts, after months of heavy losses and a counteroffensive that has not returned the sweeping gains that were expected, lots of Western observers of Ukraine, many of them highly respected in their fields, have reached for the same word to describe the situation on the ground, and that is stalemate. But you seem to have a differing view on why we shouldn't be using stalemate as a metaphor to describe the current situation in Ukraine. Well, I think we live in a very discursive moment in general. Words always drive thoughts and thoughts drive actions. And I think that's more true in the age of the internet, where we have a billion electronic interactions over events that happen thousands of miles away from us. And then on the basis of what emerges from that discourse, we describe what we think is actually happening. And so I think that's all. it's all the more reason to be very careful with our metaphors. And I have to say, I, I hate and despise with my entire being the metaphor of stalemate um, for the fundamental reason that war is not a game of chess. And the moment that you drop yourself into thinking that it's a game, then your mind is working in a different way suddenly. And I think that's why everybody likes the metaphor of stalemate, honestly, is that it allows you to move away from the grimy, difficult truths that war is unpredictable and lasts a long time and puts you in this realm where you feel like you're more of an expert. In terms of how the metaphor operates, what I don't like about it is that it's not just that war is not a game, it's the particular structure of a stalemate in chess is that you can't do something because of the rules of the game. Your king can't move uh, because the king would go in check. And the thing is that in, in a war, I can just give you five more kings 
or I could just give you five more queens or whatever, like Britain or the US or the EU can just say, okay, we're going to give you a lot more counter battery stuff. Or instead of 20, 20 Bradleys, we're going to give you 300. Or instead of 50 Abrams, I'm making up these numbers, we're going to give you 500. Instead of 12 Attackums, we're going to give you 500. We, you can just drop more pieces on the board. And that's where the metaphor constrains us because we think, oh, there's a stalemate, there are rules, here we are, we're stuck. But those rules don't actually exist. If it's your friend, you can drop five queens on the board. And then in terms of the actual progress of the war, once we've disposed of the metaphor, but like descriptively, the thing I don't like about it is that it suggests that you're stuck in something which isn't going to change. And of course, it is going to change. It's up to you. But also, it has been changing. I mean, there was something substantial which happened in the battlefield this summer, which was that the, the Ukrainians, um, to almost everyone's surprise, managed to pin down the Black Sea Fleet and open up a corridor for commercial grain trade. And I think we were busy deciding on our metaphor for what was happening. And in general, not everybody, I mean, some reporters covered this, but in general, it passed people by that something meaningful had actually happened, which is this naval victory. Um, and I think it was in the Financial Times you wrote after your most recent visit to Ukraine that the term stalemate essentially allows us to distance ourselves from the conflict, I think is especially apparent at a time when a lot of attention from the West has now been diverted to the Middle East and the war between Israel, Hamas, and the potential regional sort of escalation there. So do you think using stalemate is just a convenient term that allows us to put the fight the Ukrainians are having with the Russian their Russian occupiers to one side to the back of our minds almost. Yeah, I think that's completely right. And I just you know I won't repeat my point about how much words and metaphors matter. I'm just going to note that I think here stalemate functions much the same way as fatigue. So it, rather than paying attention to what's going on and how we can change it. And rather being alert to the fact that our inaction is also a form of action, you know, that our inaction is also a choice. The notion of stalemate suggests that things are just automatically stuck where they are. I put it together with fatigue because fatigue is another concept, which I just find completely ridiculous and absurd. And in, in a certain way, it functions in the same way. It it draws attention away from the actual world of the battlefield and towards our own feelings about ourselves. So what fatigue does, because obviously we're not fatigued, it's ridiculous to say we're fatigued. You know, we might be distracted or have a short attention span or have limited resources or whatever, but nobody in America or the UK is actually fatigued by the war in Ukraine. That's absurd, right? I mean, the, the guy who runs the race is the one who gets fatigued. The person who stands by the side of the road and hands out the Gatorade is not fatigued. You know, you, when you, and when you're the guy handing out the Gatorade, which is what we are on our best days, you don't expect the person running the race to stop and ask you how you're feeling and are you fatigued, You know, which is sort of where we are. And so the thing about stalemate and fatigue is that they are devices that we use to talk the conversation back towards ourselves. And then we end up producing journalism and having discussions which are about how we feel. And once you make that move into the self-psychoanalysis, you're really doing what the, you're really doing what the Russians want you to do. You're becoming that decadent West, which they project upon us. You, you really are. And so that my, in short, my answer to your question is yes. Thank you very much for your time, Professor. We, like you, look at this war in terms of the short term and the long term. As a historian, when you zoom out and reflect on the bigger picture, are you an optimist? Has Ukraine already won its freedom from the Russians with a Western-orientated future assured? Or do you think it's too early to make a pronouncement such as that? 
I, I think, yeah, that's a wonderful question. And I, I like the way that it assumes that the military and the, and the political are, are interrelated, which they are. I'm never gonna, I'm nevertheless going to start by untangling them just, just a, a little bit. I, I think that Ukraine's future in the European Union has to do with its resistance rather than a final territorial victory. And I think that's it's very important for people to understand that Ukraine can join the European Union and for that matter, NATO, without having reconquered every square kilometer of its territory. That is the case. The the, the, the the most important country in both of those institutions, at least in continental Europe, was West Germany. And West Germany, from the beginning of both of those institutions and for decades, according to its own law, was did, did not control its own constitutional territory. And so it's, it's really important to recognize that just by occupying some of Ukraine's territory physically, Russia can't stop these processes and that Ukraine has earned the right to be in the European Union um, through things that it has done. And so I'm just going to just that slight bit of untangling um, before I move on to the military. I mean, I think Ukraine has achieved operational successes that people did not anticipate. I think Ukraine, I think Russia at this point doesn't have meaningful um, offensive potential and won't so long as Ukraine continues to be supplied by its its Western partners, which is a pretty big if. I do think that I do think that, again, accepting one of your implicit points, that wars are long. And that when you as a historian, a war on this scale is more reminiscent of the First World War or the Second World War than it is of other campaigns which might seem easier. And so I'm not surprised that we're that we're almost at year two. I won't be surprised if you get to almost year three. In these longer wars, the way you're supposed to win is that economic potential translates into denying the other side's logistics. And economic potential translates into supplying your own side. And we have been a little slow with that. So, you know, the economic preponderance that the West has over Russia is enormous. Yet the relationship of the economies of NATO to Ukraine is something like 250 to one. If you take all of our economies together and compare it, something like 250 to one. And so therefore it should be pretty easy for us to supply Ukraine, but we've been slow in making that transition. We're getting there. And so the, in, in a way, like a longer war is horrible in, in almost every single way. A longer war means more destruction, more death, more Ukrainian suffering, more Russian soldiers sent to die pointlessly. But in a longer war, the economic advantage that the Ukrainians indirectly have should eventually be telling. And that, I mean, and I'm going to say something now which sounds really optimistic. Of course, you know, I really hope that the Americans pass this supplemental, and I really hope that American leadership continues current policies or expands them. But even if it doesn't, the Germans alone, and certainly the European Union alone, and certainly the European Union plus the UK, actually do substantially outmatch Russia. And so the Ukrainians should be able to win just with European backers. Staying on Russia, you believe the West's reading of that country is rather shallow. Can you expand on that? What do you think Western commentators often get wrong? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, there's a longer term. I mean, there's a longer term discussion, which I've had with people about the significance of ideas in Russia, where I like to think that I turned out to be right. That is, the, I think the dominant view about Russia, at least until February 2022, was that 
it was an essentially technocratic place and therefore predictable because sure the elites were too wealthy, but the very fact that they were dependent on means that they can be predicted and managed. And so if you sign, if you build a gas pipeline with them, that's going to tame them rather than encourage them towards further aggression. Economics is all that. So that's like the German view. And then an American political view would be something like Barack Obama's that since it's not a big economy, Therefore, it can't do very much. And so in that sense, it's predictable because even if it tries to do something, it's not going to succeed um, in changing the overall look of the strategic environment. Whereas I've been trying to argue for quite a long time that Russia was moving in the direction of what I hope I didn't hesitate to call fascism and that ideas at the top especially really do matter and that at the very latest 2013 and probably earlier, um, Putin was always ex- already expressing himself in terms of civilization rather than state and in terms of an ideal past rather than achievable future. And that this was operationalized itself in a Russian foreign policy, which was meant to generate spectacles abroad, which had to substitute for the lack of domestic policy within. So that's the case that I was trying to make. And I... I think it's I think correct. So, I mean, I don't want to pat myself on the back, but that's one thing. I think the other thing, which, um, and other people have made this case better than me, Laurie Friedman or Phillips O'Brien and plenty of other military historians. But I think the other thing that people get wrong is that they confuse their own implicit cultural presuppositions about countries with actual military potential. So I think for a, for a very long time, for hundreds of years, we in the West have imbibed the notion that Russia is a big culture and, and that the Ukraine, if it does, is some kind of annex to Russian culture. And I think that, and, and I think the Russians have understood this in various regimes over a very long period of time. And so when you get to February 22, it appears that people are making these kinds of strategic arguments, but behind the strategic arguments is the implicit notion that Russia is real and Ukraine is not. And I think that implicit assumption, I mean, whatever real means, I think that implicit assumption simply was mistaken. And that there there are ways in which you can very easily argue that the Ukrainian nation is more consolidated than the Russian one. And that's not like that empirical reality is not something that people took on board. It was more people were operating more within the kind of abstractions of a great power and a little power. But I think great power was not something that people, it's like the notion of great powerdom or great powerness arose from like implicit unexamined notions that ultimately had to do with cultural stereotypes rather than from a a bottom to top examination. Thank you so much for your time. Can I ask, as a historian, you've spent a lot of time writing about the past. Um, What's it been like for you to actually be in Ukraine when you visit and see the history play out in front of you? I mean, could you tell us a little bit about your your experiences? What, What memories do you have that really stick in your mind? So okay, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna say something about how being a historian is cool. First of all, so when you're a historian, it actually means that you get to travel. So it's not that I was a historian of Ukraine and just sat in my office and then suddenly there was a war and I decided to go there. It's that I've been going there for 30 years, and I mean, up until now, admittedly, my idea of fun was that I would go and I'd go to the archives. That was I went to the I literally went to the archives on my honeymoon with my you know with my wife who was also going to the archives at the same time. So I, it's when you're a historian and you do it the right way, you're always going to the places that you write about because you have colleagues and you have conferences, but above all, because you have archives. And in a way that just strengthens the premise of your question, because the, the so when I went to Ukraine, I was physically going to Kiev and to regional archives. And I was also going to places 
that I cared about because they were important to something I was writing. So for example, the city of Chernihiv, which is north of Kiev, is uh, was the home of an important academy at a time when it was a center of, of theological study. Kiev and Chernihiv were the two important places. And so way back when, in the 20th century, I visited Chernihiv for the first time and you know, and looked in the archives, worked in a library, walked around. And so that makes it different when I come back to Chernihiv this time, when I came back to Chernihiv in September of 22, and one of the libraries that I'd worked in had been physically destroyed by a rocket, and um, restaurants that I'd been to had been physically destroyed, and the main street, and and also a specific neighborhood, places that I'd remembered. And of course, it's not just significant because you remember it, but it does bring it home. A second level of this is that I read this book called Bloodlands, which is is not a military history, but a lot of it is about the atrocities that take place as a result of, of the Second World War and related to the Second World War. And Ukraine is at the center of that book because more people are killed, more civilians are killed in Ukraine than anywhere else in the world between 1933 and 1945. And it is a bit haunting the way that the locations of the battlefields in this war are often the same as they were. In, in 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 43-44, like places that one would, as it were, would not have heard of, like Kubiansk, figure in the history of the Second World War, and they figure in the history of this war. And then there's the more general point, which is that that it's that, that now I'm going to agree with the premise of your question. There is something, I mean, one tries very hard through the photographs and the documents and the testimonies to get a notion of of the death pits. And one of the things which is a little different about how I wrote about the Holocaust and other atrocities is that I tried to be as territorial and specific as I could. And that meant that I did feel like I should go to Bucha, for example, like the, I should go to these actual, I should go to the places where there are death pits now. And I think that's an, it's an, it's both different and the same. Like it, it, it's that thinking about how people can do it historically prepares you for the fact that it can be done in the present. And then when you see it done in the present, it then reinforces the plausibility of how it could happen in the past. And in general, I appreciate the question because I think that the, the, hist- the, the history of these atrocities prepares us for what's possible. You know, It doesn't predict what is actually going to happen, but it prepares us for what's possible and helps us to think about how perpetration takes place. It's been, I mean, in another way, I've got to say, it's been really, really good to travel around Ukraine. I mean, because it's because I don't do it by myself. I do it with friends or colleagues or other people who have a great deal more experience and have, of course, greater reasons to grieve than I do. And it's really good to see how people are courageous and creative and go to sites and ask questions. And about. it's great to see how deoccupation also means investigation. Because as a historian, I feel very close to journalists who are, you know, who are trying to figure things out as they're happening. And so it's heartening in a way to see all the important journalistic work that's being done. Rather, remembering is important, but figuring out is also really important. That's one of the things that I feel as a historian. And the things that are figured out now will then be the sources for historians 10 years or 50 years down the line. Can I ask, just to follow up on that, you've been going to Ukraine for decades, as you said. What have you learned in the last two years? Well, I think one thing I was one thing I was really weak on was the South. Serhiy Plochy, in his great book, Gates of Europe, sketches out the case that the most important dimension of, of Ukrainian development as a nation and as an economy is North-South rather than East-West. And I think he's 100% right about that. I think East-West is a late phenomenon, like 19th, 20th, 21st century, but North-South is really fundamental. And 
So the last, so just now in September 23, um, I spent a few days in the South in Odessa and Mikolaev and, and Kherson Oblast and just s- visiting farms. Um, and that's interesting in and of itself because these, these farms have been mined and they've been rocketed and there are there's bunkers and so on in these farms and people have, have recovered and they've demined themselves and they've gotten their crops in. And it's against the setting of Russia destroying ports and attacking grain storage facilities. So but that incident of Russia trying to deny Ukraine the ability to export is is part of a much larger history of the south of Ukraine and the steppe and its taming and the transformation of steppe into very productive agricultural land. Um, and of course, it already was very productive before the railroads and the irrigation came in. And so that, you know, that connects that connects Ukraine to much longer histories uh, like ancient Greece and Scythia and so on, where ancient Greece, you know, the, the source of much of our political vocabulary and much of our science and many of our ideals and so on is actually fed by Scythia. It's fed by present day Southern Ukraine. And, uh, and so there's, and so I think that's something which I did, which didn't really dawn on me until I, until during the war, I went there and like driving on the high, like being in Mikolaev and thinking, Oh, this is very close to Olbia. And Olbia is where they worshipped Achilles. And that's because there's this myth that this story that Achilles after the Trojan War was buried on what we now call Snake Island, which historically was called White Island. Yeah, they worshipped Achilles on Snake Island. And then they worshipped him on the south coast of what's now Ukraine as well. So being in the south helped me to put those things together. I think another thing which has come home to me, it's not so much since 22, but especially since 22, but since 2014, is the importance of a generational transformation that I think one of the ways, and this goes back a little bit to the first question, earlier question about politics. One of the ways that Ukraine has succeeded in other countries, um, and I would put my own in this to some extent, have failed is the transfer of power down the generations so that the people who matter in Ukraine are generally in their 30s and 40s, which is a, which is very appropriate. And it's one of the secrets to their success, I think, but it's also a sign of a country transforming. You can compare it to you can you, know, you can be mean and compare it to America, which. But the real comparison is Russia, where the older generation has succeeded in humiliating the middle generation, right? I mean, the exemplary figures would be Navalny and Katamotza, but just in general, making it very hard for the middle generation to achieve in life, and then um, is now killing off and intimidating and traumatizing the younger generation, right? The people who are in there. Um, late teens and twenties with this war, and so I mean, it's just it's just something that I've I, I, it's, it's reinforced how important it is for generations to break through. You know, his, like history isn't just accumulation of dates and like years going by. It's also a matter of mobility of like younger people breaking through and doing things rather than getting stuck. And so this war is a it's a horrible occasion to have to see this. But what I do see is how. The generation which broke through in 2014 with Maidan learned things, became confident, built networks, and essentially, you know, gained a sort of self-understanding, self-awareness, which then translates into knowing that you have to resist and to some extent knowing how you have to resist. Many people will know you from your lectures on YouTube, which have proved incredibly popular, millions of views. Can you describe for us the transformation that you've seen in the understanding of Ukraine over the course of your career and also how change, how there have been changes in understandings of Ukraine within academia itself since the invasion began? 
That's a great question. I was putting those lectures online was a I did about this work because it was zero extra effort on my part. Yale very kindly did all the work and I was doing it for Americans. And I was really struck to, that it got such a worldwide viewership. Just in the last question, I mentioned Odessa and it was it was really odd being in the Odessa and having people like people in Odessa, not just in Kiev. And that's and that's really that's really heartening in terms of how the understanding of Ukraine has changed. It's a wonderful question because obviously it's been very fundamental. When I got interested in Ukraine, it was in the mid, it was in the mid nineties. You know, I was writing the dissertation in which the, uh, the figure I was writing about believed that there would be a Ukraine. It was a Polish sociologist and it was a very unusual view to have in the 1890s and early 1900s. And then I got interested in 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 Polish policy towards Ukraine right after 1989 and how that was related to political memory. And these were very obscure topics at the time. And I think it's I think it's fair to say that in the 90s, Ukraine functioned as a sort of post-Soviet entity, which people understood as Russia minus, or as let's understand it the same way we understand Russia, but let's exaggerate something or take something away. I think, you know, the Ukraine in the late 90s, early 2000s took on its own identity as as a, one of my colleagues very well put it in terms of a, a sort of oligarchical pluralism, you know, which was different from Russia, but it was still oligarchical. The, but I think the fundamental thing, which is hard to put one's finger on, is the notion that Ukraine wasn't quite real. So histor- you know, history depends upon both structures and agency. And so people might write about the structures, but you have to have the sense, which somehow comes from human contact or literature or some magical smark, that the people you're writing about actually have agency. And I think it was 2004, 2005, Orange Revolution, 2013, 2014, Maidan. And then for a lot of people, it was this war, 2022, which put some agency into it. And I think like the agency then allowed for a much, <clears throat> a much broader revision where people are starting to write about Ukraine in an exploratory way rather than in a sort of defensive way. And by defensive, I mean you're um, you're an ethnic studies person. You're trying to assert that Ukraine has everything that everybody else has, you know, like that mode, like you have this, we also have it. We are really part of the West, that mode, that defensive mode. And by defensive, I, I also mean reacting to other people saying you don't exist and therefore you have to say well we do and here's a list of our artists and so on i think it's we're now moving out of the defensive and into the exploratory mode where people are making very interesting moves saying okay let's try to solve the overall question of how ukraine could exist which in a way is what plochi was trying to do how could this exist how could it how could it be or people are much more confident about exploring history inside Soviet Ukraine, you know, rather than just bracketing it off. And people are much more confident, I think, treating Ukraine not as like part, this is what like my career has been about, treating Ukraine not as an example of trends in the West, but treating Ukraine as a piece in a puzzle where if you put it in, everything looks different. So if you if you set if you think of the Holodomor as the central event in, in Soviet history, which I think it was, then Soviet history looks different. Or if you try to understand the Holocaust by following the history of the death pits into Ukraine, then the history of the Holocaust looks different as it should. And then that principle applies to a really every period, You know, as I suggested in the earlier answer, also going all the way back to the ancient world. Once you say, oh, well, 
at the at the beginning of at the beginning of of the Trojan War when Agamemnon sacrifices Iphigenia, she's in fact you know sent by Artemis to Crimea or Prometheus. He's traveling, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Or the you know the what are supposed to be the mythical Amazons are in fact historical Scythian female warriors like on the steppe of Ukraine. Then when you make those kinds of moves, you realize, okay, the whole Western Civ narrative is suddenly becoming much more interesting because we've put this thing into it. And that's 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 where I've been. For the field in general, in the last couple of years, <clears throat> there's been a lot of interpreted <clears throat> about, you know, what extent the field been implicitly colonial, which I think it has been. I think a lot, you know, a lot of a lot of colleagues who we're certainly like self-critical and, and, and great scholars. Nevertheless, we're raised in a, in a fundamentally, they were in that narrative of Kiev and Imperial Russia and the Soviet Union, and in which Ukraine is always going to be sidelined. And I think there has been some really helpful re-examination from, in that field. I mean, there's an ongoing discussion about Russian imperialism and to what extent the people who are writing about Russian empire even though they're in the West, have been in some way reproducing the fundamental assumptions of Russian Empire. I think that's been I think that's been right. And I think colleagues have been, I think it's been great to see colleagues reconsider their own careers, you know, and I've been trying to do that too, in light of what's happened since 2022. One final question from me. You spoke about agency there. How do you reconcile being an objective? historian with being in a sense a subjective actor you're one of the biggest names in the world talking about this war in english i mean i i, I guess okay i'm gonna i'm gonna give you three or four different kinds of answers to that <clears throat> number one is i think it's it's unsurprising that we play different roles and the question is whether those roles are mutually enforcing in some way or whether we can make them so so to give a, a super dumb conservative example, like husband is not the same role as father, um, as I experience every day, but nevertheless, you hope to put those two things together in a way where you're doing each of them well and that they're not in direct competition one with the other. And that requires some thoughtfulness. Researcher and teacher are not the same thing at all. You know, when I'm when I'm writing, when I'm writing an academic, when I'm writing a review, let's say for a scholarly journal, I have to be in a very different place than when I'm in an introductory survey class and I have to start from the beginning. And both are very valuable, but they're quite different. And you can see how you do see how people who are great teachers often never write a book and how people who are really good at being on the frontiers of research are terrible teachers. And so those are those roles are intention, but it's and but it's not an irresolvable tension. And so that's, I mean, that's kind of how I feel about this, um, that there are tensions, but they're not irresolvable. Second second thing is has to do with like pedigree or genealogy, that I'm an East European historian in this in, in, in the sense that I write about Eastern Europe, but also in the sense that I my mental development began in the 1980s and the people I admired, and then also the people who supervised my dissertation were people who were doing both public work and scholarship. And when I look at their scholarship, it's still exemplary. And when I look at their public work, I think, well, it's really admirable that you did those things that you did. I mean, I'm now I'm now thinking, for example, of my supervisor, a Polish historian called Jerzy Jelitski, who taught illegal history classes in uh, in the 70s and 80s and was interned during Solidarity. And he was meanwhile writing this book 
um, which is in English as a suburb of Europe, which is just an exemplary history of um, of Polish culture, the Polish intelligentsia in the 19th century. So I, I guess I, I feel like, I mean, it sounds a little presumptuous, but I feel like I come from a tradition where people have shown that it's possible. You know, they've lived, they, lives have been lived where it's been shown that those two things can be reconciled. And then the, the, the third thing I would say is that, and it goes back to the earlier question about what's it like to go there now. I think that there you can the, the the present experiences and even the engagement can help you understand. I mean, I think it like I think it like so last time I was in Kiev, I was in a rehabilitation center talking to soldiers who had been gravely injured in the war. And I think that probably makes me a better historian rather than a than a worse one. Like I of course, like you can't write your history right after you walk out of the place on the rush of the immediate emotion but th- nevertheless i think it, that engagement tiny little engagement probably makes me a better historian and i also and i think it can work the other way that you know that when i have the historical background i might be a little quicker to make judgments about political things which are which are helpful or i might have categories that are that are helpful so like this like the classic example which you guys um, tactfully haven't even asked me about um, the raising money for the drone defense. Like, it's very clear to me, like, I don't have any trouble thinking, okay, well, yes, that's not classically humanitarian aid. It's obviously a military system, but I can make these distinctions between passive detection. And like, I, I have some categories for military history, which make it immediately clear to me what I'm doing or not doing when I'm raising money for the Ukrainian armed forces to detect drones and cruise missiles, right? So sometimes history can make the engage, it can give you a sense of what you're doing, when you engage. So that those are my answers. Obviously I accept that there's some kind of tension, but I don't I think you kind of have to work with the tensions and try to make them productive rather than negative tensions. And then the other thing I will say is negative, which is that it, it can become an excuse to say I'm just a physician. But you're if you're a physician then there're like things there're ways you can engage in the world, right? It can be an excuse to say I'm just a lawyer. But like a lawyer can do things that other people can't do, right? And I don't want to make the excuse that I'm just an academic because I think the fact that I am an academic means that there are things I can do in the world that I wouldn't be able to do if I weren't. Let's move on to United 24 because that's obviously one of the big parts of the interview. You you've said that you as a historian it's it's cool that you can travel. You're on a sort of this stellar list of Ambassadors, including Ukrainian heavyweight world champion boxer Alexander Yusik, Luke Skywalker, Mark Hamill, uh, virgin entrepreneur and billionaire Richard Branson is on that list of ambassadors that are helping Ukraine. So how did you actually become involved in United24, which is President Zelensky's fundraising platform for the military, for uh, the rebuilding of Ukraine and for humanitarian aid, if for people that aren't aware of it? Mm hmm. Uh, I mean, they just asked me and I said, yes. So I, I went, I, I, I saw President Zelensky in September of 22. I had a long conversation with him there in Kiev. Um, and then as I was leaving, they gave me like, they gave me a swag bag, which said United 24 on it. I was like, hmm, what's this? I, I imagine this is going to be leading somewhere, this stuff that they're giving me. And then a few days later, they just, they wrote me and they explained, here's what we're doing. This is the president's fundraising platform. And we want you to raise, we want you to help. And of course I, I immediately said, yes, for the reasons that I gave before, like I, this is a country, is the country is facing an existential situation and can I do something to help? Yeah, I can do something to help. I can do that. And then they asked me what I wanted to do. And as you say, there were all these options ranging from the, the military to the civilian. 
And actually that library in Chernihiv, which I mentioned, it's on my mind partly because it was one of the things. So rebuilding that library in Chernihiv is one of the things that United 24 is meant to be doing. And my first impulse was to say, okay, I'll do that library. And because I'm a historian, because I actually knew the place, right? I knew, and I'd seen it twice in my life. And so I thought, okay, I'll do that. And then I caught myself and I thought, okay, but aren't you now doing the more, this in a way goes back to the previous question about the tensions. Then I thought, well, aren't you doing the morally luxurious thing? Because if you help rebuild the library, then everyone's going to pat you on the back and say, oh, what a nice historian you are. How sweet you're building this library. You know, what if, what if I can, what if I can prevent libraries from being destroyed in the first place? And so I then like, so then I asked, then I did the obvious thing. And I just asked my Ukrainian friends, look, if you were me and they gave you this range of options, what would you do? And every single person I asked, and this was, remember, this is fall of, this is the fall. And so people are anticipating the Russian attempt to destroy Ukrainian infrastructure, which actually then did happen. Everybody I talked to, literally everybody said, you should do the drone defense. And so I listened to the Ukrainians. I did the drone, I did the drone defense. And I was conscious that when I did that, like it wouldn't be like it wouldn't be it would be a little bit less gentle than the library. But I'm I'm really glad I did it because it really has made a difference, and it's made a lot of. I think it's actually made a lot of a lot of people who gave the five dollars, the ten dollars, or whatever, fifty dollars. I think it's made a lot of people feel good, and rightly so because they actually did make a difference. No, I um I was chatting with Mikhail Fedorov, Ukraine's digital transformation minister, who you were working on safer skies with. I won't go into the details that I, I'm privy to, and you're no doubt privy to about how the system works because it's confidential and safety. But it's it's in- incredible to see how new technologies are born out of this need to protect people and out of a fundraising platform. Is that something that kind of also inspired you to do that? There's no doubt that the personal, like the rapid personal, clever way that they're doing all of this. Sure, I mean that, especially since now. I mean, I got it when I talked to them, but now I've seen bits of it and and I've had it explained to me. And it's cool. I mean, it's like, you know, as you say, we're not going to talk about how it works, but it's it's it is there's something really beautiful about seeing like the various types of people involved lean forward and make something like this happen very quickly. And then it's also beautiful, like the moral simplicity of it is also beautiful because what the system does is that it it passively detects things which are only in Ukrainian airspace in order to do harm to people. So that that part of it, that part of it as well. But yeah, I mean, like I don't really like like people are always talking about like this like startups, and I think that kind of metaphor gets overused and worn down. But there is something cool about people from and Fedorov has been great about this. I mean, Fedorov who's the minister after all for digital transformation, like he has leaned forward as to what his own job would be in in this war very intelligently and with great skill. And it's nice to see people lean forward like that and and come together and do something quickly, quickly, quickly with this very simple defined purpose and then actually achieve it. No, to, to, in my comparison of him, I described him as the Barnes Wallace of Ukraine is the the next DARPA. He's a, a guy that's trying to create a space for innovation to essentially find that way of ending the sort of yeah the the barging against each other of Ukraine and Russia and trying for the best. Then finally on on this with President Zelensky, you're not a journalist. You're not a sort of a media personality as such. So you will have a lot more sort of candid interaction with a man, and he will be a lot more sort of open with you than he will be in front of all of the world's cameras, whether it be in him as the actor or him as the politician or him as the wartime leader. So 
what is he actually like behind the scenes and what from your personal experiences with him? That's a very interesting question because I think with Volodymyr Zelensky, we're talking about someone who is extremely extremely gifted and who has who who has many ways of being in the world and as you suggest, and I think that's part of why he's been so important and been so effective is that he understands that it's not just politically effective but morally appropriate to appear in certain ways and uh, so I'm not going to, so I'm not, it would be, that's just by way of saying it would be, it would be conceited of me to say that I've like peeled off all the layers and seen the real person. What, what I what I will say, which I was very impressed by is that I've, I've interacted with him several times, uh, but the the one time which I, when I talked to him for the better part of an afternoon, he impressed me by doing something which I've never, and I've talked to a number of heads of state and heads of government and folks like that when they were in office. But he did something which I've never seen anyone do, which is talk to me what I wanted to talk about. <laughs> and uh, I mean, you guys know what I mean as journalists, right? Like <laughs> you you come in with your questions, but you're working, you're, you're clawing up this, you're usually clawing up this kind of smooth cliff face where, you know, you're trying to get where you're going, but the, they're not necessarily helping you. Whereas with Zelensky, so I when I talked to him, I had this. I had a few things which I felt morally responsible to tell him about American politics and stuff, and he like nodded and he had it, and he was a little bored because he already knew all this stuff. And then he's and then I said, okay, there's something I want to talk about. And he said, what do you want to talk about? And I said, I want to talk about the philosophy of freedom. And uh, and then he did this thing, like he like his eyes lit up, and he put his hands out, like he put his hands out and said, all right, let's talk about that. Right. Obviously, sincere enthusiasm for doing something which nobody had warned him was going to happen. Nobody had told him I was going to do this. Nobody, like, I don't think he really knew what I wanted to talk about. But I'm writing this book, I'm finishing this book about the philosophy of freedom. And I was very keen for various reasons to talk to him about this because over the course of the war, he'd already said very some very interesting things about freedom. And so what that what that showed me was first of all, here is a person who doesn't always have to be like in charge or look like he's in charge, which is very unusual, very unusual, because even when leaders aren't in charge, they really feel like they have to have this posture that they're in charge. He was like, eh, you know, let's talk about what you want to talk about. And the second thing which was interesting about it was, was that he was willing to listen. So like I, I told him about what my ideas were, like I was talking him down in directions, which he wasn't really expecting, I'm sure. And he was willing to go with it and think about it and then and then speak very frankly about certain things. So for example, we were talking about the history of dissidents in the Soviet Union, and um, and he, you know, and he breaks into Sakharov and his father, and like goes and goes into you know these quite quite intimate biographical details of how he was raised and what he read and under what influence and things like this. And he was ready to listen to like my version of the history of East European dissidents and things like this, which is not right in the middle of his profile, obviously as a as a politician. And he was coming up with new ideas on the spot. Like he was very frank, but he was also like he was an authentic, he was like he was an intellectual in the sense that he could go back and forth and not just hold his own, but come up with new ideas and make arguments on the spot, which was fascinating. And uh yeah, and so this thing struck me as really like this is a person who has several skills, and this is a person who can toggle from one skill set to the other. This is a person who is so confident that he doesn't mind, as it were, not looking like he's in charge for a moment. He's someone who can listen. And I have the, you know, and I have the feeling, and this is true of him and other people around him, that he he's still going up. Like he's not, he hasn't peaked. He's still going up, and he knows he's still going up, and that that's that's rather a good thing about him. 
I think we're coming to the end of our time, sadly, but can I ask one potentially cheeky question, and you can tell me if, if I'm completely wrong, but are you wearing a Vishivanka at the moment underneath the... That's not, that's not cheeky. Is it not? Um, yes, yes, I ah. am. Yeah, yeah. Um, May I ask, where did you get it? What's the story behind it? Kiev. So I, while I'm in Kiev, I'm trying to spend money on things that I actually want. And I mean, I wish there were more people in Kiev. It's a strange thing being in Kiev, you know, like there, it's this beautiful metropolis with so much to offer and you walk around and there are no other, Amer- you know, there are no other Americans, or so few Americans and so few. It's a weird thing to say. I realize it's a war zone, but it's statistically, it's not any more dangerous in the neighborhood I live in. And it's so strange to walk around that beautiful place and for there to be so few people from around the world there. There are many things that are sad about Kiev at war, but that's one of them, that it's like, it's one of the best European cities and there are so few of us actually there. And so anyway, while I'm there, I'm like, I'm trying to like consume, trying to like buy. And, and I, you know, so, and this has been in general, this last decade has been a great period for Ukrainian Ukrainian art and Ukrainian crafts. And you know, there are several companies doing really great embroidered shirts like Slobozhanka or like Etnodim. And so I just went to Ukrainsky Dim and I just bought a bunch of a bunch of Vishivanki. And then I've been giving it away to my friends. And you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to like I also hate ties. And so I'm trying to like, I'm trying to start a new fashion where like everybody can feel cool wearing like a sweater with an embroidered shirt underneath it rather than having to wear suits all the time. So it it works. Um and just finally can I ask, what's on your reading list? Um we we've been pointed towards you so many times by listeners who said that, you know, that was that this episode was really interesting. You should talk to Timothy Snyder. But for, if we can turn the question around, what do you think? What would you say our listeners should go away and, and look at and listen to maybe? I'm better at reading than listening to. Can I do reading? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, I mean, on 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 these subjects that we've been talking about. There's a cool book about the Amazons by Adrian Mayer, which is not about Ukraine nominally at all, but it is about ancient Scythia and women warriors and like rethinking classical civilization. And uh, it's it's pretty fascinating. If you want to going back even further, there's a book by David W. Anthony about it's called the horse, the wheel, and something else, which is about ancient pastoralism and um, about Ukraine. You, the lands of Ukraine is the source of the Indo-European language. And it's a kind of counter history of the Bronze Age, where you can think of Ukraine up against Mesopotamian Egypt as maybe being one of the sources of what European civilization actually is. In in terms of in terms of recent histories, I think Plohi, Serhiy Akelchik, those guys have been doing a great job. I think I think it's hard to do better than Lauren than if you're reading contemporary stuff, it's hard to do better than Lawrence Friedman's Substack page or anything that Lawrence Friedman has written. Yeah. I mean, current I'm currently obsessed with the classical world in Ukraine. So I'm I've been reading I've been reading Euripides and Aeschylus and like realizing that all these things that I've known since childhood in my own Western Civ education. A lot of it territorially actually happened in Ukraine, and I've been that's so I've been that's where my head is at the moment. I'm not sure how interesting that will be for other people, but this realization that this territorial space this is something which I think of in general about my whole career and the whole argument I'm trying to make is that the thing about Ukraine is not that it's it's atypical; it's that it's hypertypical. Like so many things which happen in the history of Europe and the world happened more in Ukraine because they happened more. It's too dark or too intense or somehow too hard to see, which I the point I try to make directly in, in Black Earth and Bloodlands was something like that. 
So yeah, I mean, that was, a, sorry, that was a little bit scattershot, but if you want to ask it in a more specific way, I'm, I'll take another shot at it. I think we've come to the end of our time, Professor, but it was absolutely fascinating talking to you. As Joe said at the beginning, you are easily our most requested guest, but it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. So thank you very much for your time. And I, I just wanted to say, I appreciate, I appreciate what you have been doing. It's, it's really important. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our world affairs newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. 